Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now I can also accept Zelle and Venmo. Just use my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 242 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, The Launch, Part 2. Just after the Saturn-Apollo disappeared into that low cloud cover, lightning struck near the spacecraft, although exactly how close is still being debated. You'll see and hear Conrad, that is, say a few seconds later that he has lost his inertial platform and the spacecraft power system has cut out. At 10.22 a.m. Houston time, Apollo 12 began its journey to the moon's ocean of storms, thundering from the launch pad into an overcast sky. Pete Conrad could not restrain his glee at once again leaving the Earth, reporting, This baby's really moving. Within seconds, the Saturn disappeared into the overcast. The clouds muted the sound and glowed for a few seconds with red-orange fire. The tempo of the air-ground communications indicated the Yankee Clipper was off to a good start. Dick Gordon reported, Looking good, the sky is getting brighter. But this message was followed by a brief, uh uh-oh. All 11 system warning lights fired at the same time. In the most catastrophic simulations, the crew had only seen three or four lights. But right now, in the real world, the whole board looked like a Christmas tree. Conrad said it sounded like a baseball bat smacking an aluminum pole. At that instant, the controllers saw a brief glitch on their displays. In the command module, glaring amber lights in the upper right quadrant of the caution and warning panel flashed on. Conrad yelled to Gordon and Bean, What the H-word was that? Over the internal intercom, Conrad started to read them aloud. AC bus one light. All the fuel cells. I just lost the platform. The platform he was referring to was a set of gyroscopes that provide a reference for navigation. The platform is aligned using reference stars and is essential to determine spacecraft orientation and velocity. Platform loss during the launch phase is a serious problem. 
Conrad saw the eight ball tumble aimlessly. More warning lights came on, confirming that the command module's navigation platform was out of commission. Conrad called Houston. Okay, we've just lost the platform, gang. I don't know what's happened here. We had everything in the world drop out. Only a slight strain could be heard in his voice. Okay, we just lost the platform, gang. I don't know what happened here. We had everything in the world drop out. Roger. Plus one. Fuel cell lights and AC bus light. Fuel cell disconnect. AC bus overload one and two. Main bus A and B out. We lost a lot of stuff, Gordon responded on the closed loop of the internal intercom. We had a whole bunch of buses drop off. Electrical power was provided by the command and service module batteries and fuel cells to a bus or distribution point. There are two main buses and ten secondary buses for power distribution to the command and service module equipment. Thirty-six seconds after launch, observers saw a brilliant flash of lightning in the vicinity of the launch complex. Initially, they did not report it because they were just too busy. Pete Conrad glanced over to the center panel and was startled to see almost every light that had anything to do with the electrical system glowing brightly. He could hardly believe his eyes. In the right seat, Alan Bean was mystified. He had seen so many electrical crises in the simulator that he could, just by looking at the pattern of warning lights, recognize any given malfunction almost immediately. But he had never seen so many lights before. The thought flashed through his mind that something had severed the electrical connection between the command module and the service module. Had the emergency detection system sensed some problem with the booster, triggering the escape tower and whisking them away? No, he would have felt that for sure. And yet something was seriously wrong with the electrical system. Or was it? The meters showed that the spacecraft was still drawing electrical power, although at a lower voltage than normal. Could he even trust the gauges? He told Conrad, There's nothing I can tell is wrong, Pete. In mission control, the flight director, Jerry Griffin, heard Pete Conrad describe in one breath the longest list of malfunctions he had ever heard. Griffin couldn't believe this was happening, not on his first mission as a flight director. He was certain he would have to abort the flight. But right now, Griffin needed answers. Nearly everyone was scrambling to nail down the source of the data loss. The master alarm and caution and warning reports from the crew indicated big troubles on board the Yankee Clipper. With the navigation system unusable, the crew was down to the backup system in case of an abort. The only thing keeping the launch phase going was the Saturn guidance and computer system in the instrument unit at the booster's forward end. The command and service module gyros were tumbling, useless as a reference for either the crew or the guidance system. The crew was literally flying blind without instruments they could trust. Jerry Carr, the Capcom, relayed the reassuring news that the Saturn was still accelerating on the proper trajectory toward orbit. This was the only piece of good news so far. In a calm voice, Flight Director Griffin called on John Aaron, the bright 24-year-old flight controller in charge of the electrical system. 
but he heard only silence. Griffin called again. What do you see? In the mission control systems road, John Aaron was seated at the console in front of Griffin, monitoring the cabin pressure as the Saturn continued its ascent. Rapidly scanning his displays and event lights, John was about to advise Griffin on the cabin pressure stats when his displays stopped updating. Data dropouts were not uncommon during launch, but when the data returned a few seconds later, many of his electrical measurements were scrambled. As the seconds clicked by, time was not on Aaron's side. The backup batteries had taken over, and Aaron prayed that whatever happened had not shut off the flow of the oxygen and hydrogen to the fuel cells. If the fuel cell valves had closed, the lunar mission was over. In the command module, Conrad's hand moved instinctively to the abort handle as all screens went blank. The voices from Houston and the Cape were not panicked, but they were pretty urgent, and there were lots of them. Pete Conrad had a fast decision to make. While it was better to gain more altitude to give the chutes more time to open, the longer they went, the farther from the Cape they would be when they came floating back. If the capsule did manage to get separated from the roaring, flaming Saturn, and there was no guarantee of that, there was no telling exactly where it would end up. They had trained for a hard landing in the desert or the jungle in Africa or thereabouts, but no one had actually done it. They would probably hit water, but where? There was a whole lot of ocean underneath them, and capsules wouldn't float forever. Could they ride it out? What if they weren't able to restart the system? What if the thousands of miles of wire they needed to keep going had been fried by the lightning? What if the command module was dead? Conrad's fingers closed around the handle. He looked at Bean and Gordon for a split second. They were as out of ideas as he was. Back in mission control, John Aaron suddenly remembered he had seen this unique pattern only once before in his life. During a pad test a year earlier, a technician inadvertently switched off a power supply which scrambled the data. Intrigued by the data anomaly, Aaron traced it to a power supply operated by a little used switch. Aaron visualized the command module instrument panel and the switch labeled Signal Conditioning Equipment, or SCE. The Signal Conditioning Equipment was a small redundant power supply that provided voltage to critical instrumentation points in the electrical, booster, control, fuel cell, and cryogenic systems. If the normal power supply failed, the switch could be moved from normal to auxiliary, or AUGS. Aaron now translated this single obscure event into a train of actions that would save the Apollo 12 mission. Aaron's next call made him a legend in mission control. He said, quickly and confidently, Flight, try SCE to AUGS. The words tumbling over the loop from Aaron were alien to Griffin, alien to the entire team. Taken aback, Griffin stated, Say again, S-C-E to Augs? Ending his statement with a question mark. This time, more firmly and slowly, Aaron repeated himself. 
When the Capcom Jerry Carr passed on Aaron's recommendation, it made little sense to Pete Conrad, who blurted out, What the H-word was that? Carr repeated the instruction, emphasizing SCE to auxiliary. Apollo 12, Houston, try SCE to auxiliary, over. SCE to auxiliary. F-C-E, F-C-E to auxiliary. During powered flight, the command module switches and controls are allocated to the crewman who can see and reach them. The S-C-E switch was Al Bean's responsibility. Reaching forward, Al firmly toggled the switch down and confirmed, S-C-E is in auxiliary. Moments later, in mission control, John Aaron announced, I've got valid data, flight. It's looking good. Ecom reports the readings back. Ecom reports the readings back. John Aaron's telemetry had returned. For some unknown reason, the spacecraft's fuel cells had been knocked offline. Unless they could be reconnected, the command module would have only its batteries for power, and they were reserved for re-entry. At the flight director's console, Jerry Griffin weighed the possibility of an abort. Interdispersed with the discussion, the trench continued to rock through the abort mode calls. For a few seconds, Griffin worried that Aaron might give him an abort call, but when none came, Griffin exhaled a loud sigh of relief. Still, the Saturn sped onward. Conrad glanced up and saw bright light. They were above the clouds. They were heading in the right direction. Whatever had happened to them, it hadn't touched the booster or its guidance system. The G-meter had passed three and was still climbing. Now the command module's internal intercom buzzed with excited voices, thick with the weight of acceleration. Try the buses. Get the buses back online. I've lost the timer. Two minutes. EDS to auto. Then... Al Bean heard Capcom say, Apollo 12, try and reset your fuel cells now. Apollo 12, Houston, try to reset your fuel cells now. But Alan Bean was reluctant to do that without knowing what had gone wrong. Conrad said, wait for staging. They were coming up on that chaotic moment when the first stage would drop off and the second stage engines would ignite. Conrad and Gordon told Bean, Hang on. The first stage fell away and the three men were slammed against their harnesses, just as they had expected. Inboard engine out on schedule. Altitude 33 miles, downrange 45 miles. Seconds later, Bean revived the stunned fuel cells. Everything was back online, apparently none the worse for wear. As the second stage did its work, Conrad offered the theory that they had been struck by lightning. Roger, we copy, Pete. You're looking good. Good staging and good thrust on the second stage. We've had a problem here. I don't know what happened. Uh, I'm not sure you get hit by lightning. Conrad's suspicions would soon prove to be correct. As it lifted off, the Saturn had trailed a column of flame and ionized gases, which stretched all the way to the ground. Tearing through the rain clouds, it became the world's longest lightning rod. 36 seconds after liftoff, a bolt of electricity discharged right through Apollo 12 
and onto the launch tower 6,000 feet below. The command module had shut itself off in response to the tremendous electrical surge. A second strike at 52 seconds, unnoticed by Conrad and his crew, had wiped out the navigation platform. Both lightning bolts were recorded by an automatic movie camera near the launch pad, as analysts would later discover. Right feet, your fuel cells look good down here. Think we need to do a little more all-weather testing. Amen. Good show feature in mode two. Launch escape tower has been jettisoned on schedule. And we confirm the engine skirt separation also. Downrange 122 miles, altitude 61 miles, velocity 10,000 feet per second. So, uh, we've got uh, an ISS light on and we've got a cycling CO2 partial pressure high, which I don't bother me particularly. And we have reset all the fuel cells. We have all the buses back on the line and we'll just square up the platform when we get into orbit. Roger, Pete. That sounds good. As Bean had reconnected the fuel cells, the warning lights went out one by one. But the platform was still out. They would deal with that once they were in orbit. Conrad released the abort handle and shook Al Bean's hand. Then he grinned at Gordon. It's important to remember the lightning strikes and the recovery happened very quickly in just a few moments. I'm going to play an uninterrupted clip of what went on in real time. This audio comes from the command module voice recorder, so we can hear conversations inside Yankee Clipper and also hear the conversations with the ground. 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, ignition, 3, 2, 1, 0, liftoff. Try FCE to auxiliary, over. 
The second stage continued its long, smooth push, and inside Yankee Clipper, tensions evaporated. Pete Conrad let out a giddy, high-pitched giggle, like a schoolboy who had just sneaked out of class without getting caught. Then he laughed, and Gordon and Bean laughed with him, saying, Was that ever a sim they gave us? There were so many lights up there, I couldn't read them all. of Apollo 12 exemplified one of the most important differences between flying airplanes and flying in space. Conrad could remember narrowly avoiding a mid-air collision with another plane when he was at Pax River. After the miss, his heart pounded for several minutes, but during the lightning strike it was different. There was no terror, nor would there be any other time in Conrad's four space flights because things just didn't happen fast enough, and it proved one of spaceflight's emerging maxims. If you don't know what to do, don't do anything. At T-plus 7 minutes 5 seconds, Houston confirmed that Apollo 12 was on the right trajectory. S-4B orbit. S-4B orbit. Shortly after the go for staging, the third stage lit. Staging 
staging? Yep. Beautiful. Got it. There you go. Got a good head for me. The Saturn guidance and propulsion had done a fantastic job so far. Griffin's team settled down and started a meticulous checkout of the spacecraft. The question now was, could they muster enough confidence in the spacecraft to fire up the engines and shoot for the moon? As the spacecraft flew toward Carnarvon, Australia, the trench got the next shock. Radar tracking was several minutes earlier than expected at Carnarvon. This was not good news, since it could occur only if the command module was in a much lower orbit than expected. With a sinking feeling, the flight dynamics officer Jay Green conferred briefly with retro Chuck Dietrich, trying to resolve two incompatible pieces of data. Flight Director Griffin had enough problems, so they decided to keep their concerns to themselves while they anxiously waited for more tracking data. Finally, a sigh of relief when they had confirmation that the Yankee Clipper was in the correct orbit. They trusted their gut instincts and they were right. An atmospheric anomaly had bent the tracking data, faking the radar into believing that the command module had crossed the horizon early. The command and service module power was back, but the status of the spacecraft was uncertain. Flight Director Griffin's team gave a sigh of relief when the third stage of the rocket pushed Apollo 12 into orbit. Reports of the lightning strike were withheld until after the critical launch phase was over. At a news conference after launch, astronaut Tom Stafford described the emergency procedures taken by the spacecraft crew. At the time when they lost uh, the three fuel cells and the two AC buses uh, in the spacecraft, a lot of lights come on and the warning uh, sounds go off. I think Pete Conrad uh, and the whole crew should be really commended for keeping a cool head there and uh, reacting just like they should since the... Uh, our own um, instrument unit went out and started to spin on him. However, he was looking at the rate gyros as the backup instrument made his own analysis real fast and said, let's press right on. Uh, at that time, then uh, Al Bean was able to reset the fuel cells. And uh, by the t actually, by the time that, that it got past staging, they had the AC buses back on the line working one, two, three, four. I think this also brings out the point that when everything uh, just went boom like that suddenly as far as the loss of power and all the other indications uh, is an example of why we have experienced test pilots flying these vehicles. President Nixon also weighed in. President Nixon watched the launch outside in the rain. Sometime later, when everyone had caught his breath again, the president visited launch control. America, the United States, is first in space. We're proud to be first in space. We don't say that in any jingoistic way. We say it because as Americans, uh, we want to give uh, the people of this country, and particularly our young people, the feeling that here is an area that we can concentrate for a positive goal. Concentrate and be proud of being Americans. Be proud of what we have accomplished, not only for ourselves, but for future generations and for the whole world.
Salutations from Central Alabama. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 242 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 12, The Launch Part 2. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. In case you haven't heard, the first 43 episodes of the podcast are now available on the Space Rocket History Archive podcast. Make sure you check that out. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors, for honoring your pledge this month. Had uh, several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I want to give credit to my sources. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Rocket Man by Nancy Conrad, and Apollo, an eyewitness account by Alan Bean. Well, every episode, I grow more impressed with the folks at Mission Control and the astronauts. Ecom John Aaron was barely out of college, and he saved the flight with his call, SCE to AUX. And did you think about how quickly that problem was solved? I hope you would get the impression once I played it out in real time, because that was quick, that they figured out what was wrong and they fixed it. Now, a word about the abort handle. Chaikin said Conrad never gave the abort handle a second thought, but Conrad's biography told a very different story. So... In this case, I chose Conrad's biography as the correct source. I could have been wrong. So I'm just putting that out there. That's the way history is, folks. You, you get all kinds of disagreements about what exactly happened. That's just history. Now for something I have never done before. I've been asked to help spread the word about a project that's going on. Paul Hildebrandt is trying to get enough support to make a film about Apollo 8's journey to the moon. I thought this was a worthwhile project, so I want to play the audio that he sent me. Hey Mike, thanks for having me on the show today. So, I'm Paul Hildebrandt, uh, director of new documentary film on Apollo 8, titled First to the Moon. Uh, This film is about the mission of Apollo 8, which I'm sure all of your listeners are well aware of. Of course, the mission where we traveled to the moon for the first time. We left the Earth for the first time. Uh, It was the first time that anybody rode on a Saturn V. A lot of firsts for this mission. Broke the speed record at that time. And it all happened in a very difficult year. 1968 was uh, a rough year for the country. Uh, But at the end of it, you know, Orbiting the moon and sending those images back to Earth really made a difference. Um, and of course, the Earthrise photo that they brought back, we, we still uh, see the effects of that photograph today. The film itself is going to be uh, kind of an immersive experience uh, as we tell the story of Apollo 8 as they travel out to the moon, orbit the moon, and then return. Uh, we're also going to tell uh, the complete biography of the three astronauts, Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and James Lovell. So in order to tell this incredible story, we need funding. Uh, So that's where your audience comes in. We're asking for your support to please help us fund the post-production of the film. 
Uh, so in order to create this immersive experience, we need to have music, we need to have really great photorealistic animation because it can't look cheesy, and we need archival film from the National Archives scanned in incredibly high detail, 1080 or 4K in some cases, of the original NASA films, things like the training films, the onboard uh, films from the spacecraft, the launch footage, engineering footage, all kinds of great things that we need to have scanned in, and all of this film will be made available for free uh, to anybody who wants it on archive.org after the film is released. So again, please help to fund this project. If you go to firstmoonmovie.com, that's our website, you can read more about the film there, click on the Kickstarter link, takes you to Kickstarter, uh, and we need to raise that $100,000 to complete the film by February 15th. Thanks for listening. Okay, Paul, I want to wish you great success in this fantastic project you're working on. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this week's episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Thomas M. donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. David B. donated at the commercial level in acknowledgement of Rocket Lab for their successful launch of a satellite into Earth orbit. Killian M. from Germany donated at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Karsten E. from Denmark donated at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Timo S. from Germany donated at the Sputnik level. And Kevin T. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Unfortunately, we lost four Patreon donors this month, so we are back down to 153 Patreons, with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. And our overall donors have reached 181, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. To make a donation, you can go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button, or you can click on the Patreon link and become my patron on Patreon. Or you can mail me a check. To do that, just email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. I have an item to give away this week. It is the official Space Rocket History logo vinyl refrigerator magnet. It has a picture of the official SRH logo with the rockets. To select the winner, I gave every 2018 donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number four, George Louder. That's George Louder. If you would please email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, and I will mail this out to you. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will have Translunar Injection and the Coast of Apollo 12. As I record this, I have just watched the live stream of the Falcon Heavy launch, and it was fantastic. I want to give a super shout-out to SpaceX and the highest congratulations for the successful launch 
of Falcon Heavy. Could you believe that? The simultaneous landing of the two side boosters. It was just incredible. I didn't make it to the Cape to view it in person, but as I said, I watched the live stream, and I was just so pleased, so pleased with it. We have been waiting for this launch for years through the endless technical problems and delays. I am just elated at this moment that we finally got to see it today. What a giant leap for SpaceX. They now have an operational booster powerful enough to take people to the moon and maybe Mars. Absolutely fantastic. So my big, big, big congratulations to SpaceX. On that note, I'm going to close out. I hope to have episode 243 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.